will invite you to turn with me, if you will, to uh, first to Leviticus chapter 21. We're going to read verses 17 through 19. Uh, if you're using one of the church Bibles, you'll find that on page uh, 100. If you're able to put a finger in Luke chapter 14, that will be our main text this morning. But just a few verses first out of Leviticus 21. Beloved saints, this is God's word. Speak to Aaron, saying, None of your offspring throughout their generations who has a blemish may approach to offer the bread of his God. For no one who has a blemish shall draw near. A man blind or lame or one who has a mutilated face or a limb too long or a man who has an injured foot or an injured hand. And now turn with me, if you will, uh, to Luke chapter 14, verses 7 through 24. If you're using one of the church Bibles, you'll find that starting on page 873. Maybe wondering what in the world Leviticus 21 has to do with this. Maybe you'll pick it up as we read through. Again, this is our God's word. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. And then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said, Blessed is everyone who will eat the bread of the kingdom of God. But Jesus said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant, saying to those, uh, to his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. Another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. And so the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in the poor, and crippled, and blind, and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, 
go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. That ends the reading of God's word. Let us ask that he'd be pleased to speak to us uh, through our time in it this morning. O God, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are your ways higher than ours, and your thoughts higher than our thoughts. We're here because we want to know you. We want to know your truth and to know your ways. And so we ask that you would teach them to us, that you would guide us in them, that you would teach us to know your ways, that we would seek after them with all of our hearts and with all of our minds and with all of our strength. Do this in and among us as we draw near to you in your word we pray. Amen. You may be seated. A question I like to ask people, one that gets at the most important issues in life, one that uh, cuts to the chase, as it were, and sees what's really going on in a person's heart and mind, is to ask, why should God allow you into heaven? What could be more important, right? It's a question that gets at eternity. In your readiness to meet your maker, it gets at the reality that of when you stand before God and he asks you why he should let you into heaven, what will your answer be? Where do you place your hope? I, I, not surprisingly, I think we know how... Uh, most uh, outside the church would respond or, and do respond uh, to this question. Usually it's something along these lines. Why wouldn't he want me? The assumption, right, is that heaven is a natural birthright and that you have to do something really, really bad uh, to disqualify yourself. Or you might hear, I'm a pretty good person. The, that person looks around and and. According to their sense, there's really two kinds of people in this world. There are liars and cheats and swindlers and thieves. And then there are decent people, those who try to do the right thing. They, they work hard. They pay their bills. They volunteer and they help out. They're good neighbors. They water your plants when you're out of town. They might not be perfect, but neither are they Hitler. And, and they say, I'm a decent person. Yeah, I think I'll make the cut. Most people simply see heaven as where decent people go. It's the reward for living a moral life. You have to be pretty bad to go to hell. We get that. We, we, it's not surprising to hear that sort of response from those outside, that's how the world tends to think. We know that that's how they think, and we also get that they also believe that they are good people that will be in heaven. What's surprising, though, when I ask that question is how many people inside the church answer in a similar way. It's truly shocking 
How many people who have been raised in the church or who have attended for months or even years, who, who have sat under the regular preaching of the word, who presumably read their Bibles at home, still say things like, well, I try to obey his commands, as if obeying his commands is what he requires of you to get into heaven. That the, that the Bible actually teaches decent people who do their best, go to heaven. That all God expects from you is that you try your hardest. Our passage today addresses that kind of thinking head on. It makes it clear that that God's ways are not our ways. In fact, he outright condemns our typical way of thinking. And what he replaces it with is truly glorious. It is wonderful. And it is life. As we look at our passage today, there's really just one thing I want to drive home, and it's this. God shares heaven with those who do not deserve it and admit they do not deserve it. I'll say that again. God shares heaven with those who do not deserve it and admit they do not deserve it. Both of those things are extremely important, as we will see in our passage. In other words, your only way, your only hope when God asks you why he should let you into heaven is to admit you have no good reason. That's your only hope. And to see this, we want to look at instructions that that Jesus gives about how to be a good guest at a feast and how to be a good host at a feast, and how these two instructions are actually intended to teach us about who God is. That's what we're going to look at today in in our passage. We pick right up where we left off last week. Jesus is still in the house of the Pharisee. Remember, this is the Sabbath. Uh, We saw last week he healed uh, a man with dropsy, or what we might call today edema. Uh, He's still sitting in the house, and he's just healed this man. He's already stirred the pot, So why not keep going, right? Uh, And he notices that those who were invited as they come in start to choose the good seats. They all assume that the places of honor, presumably closer to the host, are naturally where they should sit. And I think we get this. We understand that usually the host or, or an important guest sits at a head of a table, the seat of honor. We, we understand that when we go to wedding feasts, like he's talking about here, uh, that the head table is reserved for the wedding party, and, and tables closest to that are reserved for the family uh, of the bride and the groom. And obviously the, the bride's family gets the more important seats than the groom's family, appropriately so, right? That there, there's, we get seating arrangements, And what Jesus sees is guests coming in and choosing the desired seats for themselves. And you know what it is that makes people do that. It's pride. They want the best, and worse than wanting the best, they assume that they deserve the best. Who else here could be as worthy as I for that desired table? that desired seat. 
And so he speaks up. He says, when you're invited to a meal, don't assume the best seat for yourself. How humiliating will it be if the host has to come and tell you that you are not important enough for that seat? And then in front of everyone, you do the walk of shame down to that lower seat. That's really the only word that can describe it. It's the word Jesus chose, and it's so perfect, shame. It's what makes people never want to come back. And they say a thing like, how can I ever show my face there again after how I was humiliated? Instead, he says, take one of the lower seats. And then when the host comes and and tells you that a much better seat was intended for you, you will be elevated before all. Not shame, but the walk of honor. All because of the seat you chose. The assumptions you made as you entered. And then Jesus says, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. Verse 11. And I think we get this. It's, it's not surprising. In fact, most of the world sees the wisdom in this. They, but they would see it as, as a strategy to posture yourself, as a way to maximize your reputation, as a tactic. But that's not how Jesus is saying it. For Jesus, it's not a tactic, a way to make yourself look good. This isn't about reputation management. And to prove that, we can look at verse 12 and following when he turns to the host. Because he knows what the temptation of a host who throws a feast is. After all, they get to choose who sits where. They get to make the guest list and decide who gets to come in the first place. And so he knows what their temptations will be and what are they. They're going to be tempted to invite only the prominent and important people. Only friends and family. Only those who are likely to benefit them back. And they're going to give the most important seats to the most influential people. Because they know that what goes around comes around. And people you treat well will one day treat you well. And whom you choose to invite can be to your advantage. And what people don't want to say out loud, but is equally true, is that that will also affect whom you choose not to invite. After all, what happens if you invite the wrong sort of people? What will those important people think of you when they see who else you invited? How will that reflect upon you? After all, what do such people offer in return? They're not going to help you uh, rise in social rank. They don't tend to host nice banquets to which they can invite you. They, they have really nothing to offer, and so they're so easy to exclude. We know what we call this, don't we? What Jesus is addressing, it's called prejudice. Judging people by their externals. 
their social awkwardness, their standing in society, their wealth, how physically attractive they are, what they have to offer you. And Jesus says, no, instead invite the, the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. And he says that, that you'll be blessed precisely because they have nothing to offer you. And look what he says, verse 14. You'll be repaid at the resurrection of the just. And he's talking about the last day. Basically he's saying, they might not have much to offer you, but God does. And he'll see your kindness and he'll repay your kindness. So where do pride and prejudice lead? What happens when we treat people this way? When we think too highly of ourselves and assume that the best seat must always be ours. When we judge other people as, as being below us and we only see them in, in terms of what they do or don't have to offer. More importantly, how do we start to treat God when this is how we think? Well, first, when we think too highly of ourselves, we think heaven is our birthright. That not only is there a seat in heaven reserved for us, but it's probably a really good seat. Like James and John. Do we get to sit on your right and left hand? Of course we do. Who else would you have sit on your side? But not only do we assume that there's a seat reserved for us in heaven, when we hear God's invitation, when we're filled with pride and we're filled with prejudice, we don't feel a sense of urgency at his invitation. We tell ourselves, we'll get around to it eventually, but right now there's so much going on. We see his invitation, quite frankly, as one more thing competing for our time and our energy. We think ourselves important and busy, and we tell ourselves that we'll get to that when things calm down, after we've had our fun, or once our careers are established, or once we get married, or once we have children, or once our children are a little bit older, or once our children are out of the house. But we just keep moving it down because there's always going to be a fresh supply of excuses. These are the kinds of things, the kinds of excuses that the invitees to the banquet use in verses 18 through 20. Jesus tells a parable, and it's from God's perspective. The banquet represents his invitation uh, to come to him for eternal life. But notice how the respected members of society respond. One says that he just bought a field and he needs to go inspect it. Another says that he, he's just bought some livestock and he has to tend to them. Still another says he just got married and he can't come right now. And what's super interesting is, is that Deuteronomy 20 lists these things and a few others out as valid excuses for young men not to have to serve in the army, to go to war. 
And so at first glance, his hearers might say, I know these excuses. These are excuses God has told us are valid. And they might have resonated. They would have been seen as as good reasons to put off something that seems urgent until later. They might have heard Jesus say all these things and, and said, yeah, that sounds reasonable. But here's the problem with that sort of thinking. Those were only valid excuses in times of war. And if you claim these as a reason, what you're saying is what you're asking me asking of me is the same as going to war. Your, your invitation for me to come to God is an invitation to go to war. Well, with whom? Maybe the one you're ignoring and trying to push away. In other words, ignoring God, putting him off for now, is not an act of indifference. It's not simple busyness. It's treating God like he's the enemy and you're at war. But what about God? What's his perspective in all of this? What are his ways like? We've seen that, that uh, we've seen already the ways of man. We see how we think, how we judge. Now let's see what the ways of God are. Uh, God famously said through the prophet Isaiah, My thoughts are not your thoughts, <laughs> neither are my ways your ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. God has told us that not only do we not think the same way, but his ways are far superior to ours. And that's shown clearly uh, in that passage in Isaiah. Isaiah 55 is where that famous verse comes from. But earlier, just a few verses earlier in Isaiah 55, uh, the Lord says this, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for things, for that which does not, is not bread, and you labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. God says... Right before he tells us his ways are not our ways, he says, I love to bless people who can't afford it. That's not how we think. That's the opposite of how we think. He doesn't serve those who will benefit him. He doesn't look around and say, who are the people I want on my team, the movers and the shakers? He looks around for those who have nothing to offer him and says, I want those. That's what he's talking about when he says his ways are not like our ways. And you can hear echoes of Isaiah in our passage. He says, invite the people who can't repay you. Feed the people who have nothing to offer. Because that's what God does. He's the man who throws the banquet in that parable. He knows how the so-called important people in society will respond. They're too busy for God. They have more pressing matters. They are caught up more in the gifts of God than the God of the gifts. 
And they worship the things God made rather than the one who made them. And Jesus eventually says, as our passage draws to a close, they will not be welcome into heaven. These beloved are the decent people. These are the pillars of society. These are the hard workers. Others depend upon them. But they are self-important. They think God would be lucky to have them when and if they get around to it. But when they finally do get around to it, they find the doors to heaven closed and locked. So who does get in? Jesus calls them the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame in verse 21. And that list is important for two reasons. The first is because he knows that these are precisely the kinds of people who don't normally get invited to banquets. And that's what he wants to call out, their prejudice, their unwillingness to look past the the externals. But there's another reason that he uses these particular gifts. Because in Leviticus 21, he says that those are the people who weren't allowed into the temple. Now you might be thinking, okay, so first God says they can't come, and now he's saying they're the only ones who can come. Would God please make up his mind? But you have to remember that God gave his people uh, physical pictures to teach them spiritual realities. So the clean and unclean diet. You're allowed to eat these animals but not these. And, And the point of that was simply say, you can't eat all the foods that the surrounding nations eat because you need to remember to be different than the surrounding nations. Uh, Or they had regular ceremonial washings to remind them that the stain of sin needed to be washed away. They had to offer regular animal sacrifices to remember that they owed God their lives. And so too were physical ailments used to teach them about physical ailments. I mean, sorry, physical ailments were used to teach them about spiritual ailments. Because spiritually, beloved, We are all blind, we are all lame, we are all crippled, and we are all destitute and poor. Spiritually, not one of us has anything to make us worthy or desirable. None of us deserves to enter into God's presence. Because God's standard is absolute perfection. God doesn't say that he accepts decent people or, or those who are better than the next guy or, or better than they used to be or simply honest, hardworking individuals or, or volunteers at the local charity. He demands perfection. And that means having never committed any sin, not one, you've never lied, you've never shaded the truth, never coveted something that belongs to another, never preferred the gifts of God over God himself, never once failed to honor the Sabbath, never brought shame to his name, always honored your parents perfectly. Lust has has never been an issue, not once. On and on that list would go. 
And if you've sinned even once, then spiritually you're blind, lame, crippled, and poor. You have nothing to offer in return. You can't repay the God of heaven even partially. Do you see how ludicrous it would be when God asks you why, he should be, why you should be allowed into heaven that you would reply, who wouldn't want me? Or I'm a pretty good person. Or even, I try to obey. So what hope is there? Well, the only hope that we have isn't in ourselves. It isn't a God who is neither proud nor prejudiced. He invites those who have nothing and he feeds them on the bread of heaven for free. He humbles the proud and he exalts the lowly, the humble. The real difference between those who enter into heaven isn't even really who is blind and poor and crippled and lame, but who is willing to acknowledge that they are. Those who assume they belong find out they don't, and those who know they don't belong end up invited. This is all about the heart. Our God, beloved, is the one who says, Come to me, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. He says it's free. And that's what Jesus is pressing home in our passage. But here's the beauty, and this, is, this, is, this takes great good news and it makes it greater. He doesn't invite you into heaven unchanged. What have we been seeing throughout the Gospel of Luke? It's that he heals the crippled. He gives sight to the blind. He takes the poor and he makes them heirs of heaven, rich beyond measure. In other words, those who acknowledge that they aren't good enough are made holy and righteous. They're made perfect. Did you notice what Jesus called the last day in verse 14? The resurrection of the just, the resurrection of the righteous. He says, on that day, you will be seen in Jesus Christ as if you never had a sin, as if you were perfect, without spot or blemish. You will be made whole. And these will be blessed with the bread of heaven. As a foretaste of that great banquet, Jesus has spread a table before us today. He is the host, and we are the guests. And the invitation to this meal is simple. If you are poor, come. If you are lame, come. If you are blind, come. If you are crippled, come, and I will make you whole. Come and eat without price. 
I've said it many times. And if the Lord tarries, I'll say it many more. If you think you belong at this table, you don't. If you know you don't belong, you do. This table is a picture not just of the love of Jesus, but the price he paid to make heaven yours. It's not that heaven doesn't come at a price, it's that he paid the price so we don't have to. He laid down his life for you. He suffered what you deserved in order to purchase you a place that you could not afford. This meal shouts everything we heard in our passage. And it tells you how to respond when asked why God should let you into heaven. The answer is simple. Because Jesus is kind and merciful. Because he saves those who can't save themselves. Because he invites people who don't deserve to be invited. Because I acknowledged that I don't belong. And still he said, come. And also reminds us of those instructions at the beginning of our passage. Don't arrogantly presume the place of honor. Don't only show kindness to those who can repay. How could you? That's not how Jesus has loved you. And he wants you to go and do likewise, to love as you have been loved. And so the Lord's table isn't just a reminder of how you have been loved, but how you are to love as well. Without pride, without prejudice, love like Jesus loves. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, merciful Savior, Holy Spirit, we thank you that you have loved us, that you have called us, that you have compelled us to come, not because we were perfect, not because we could pay you back, and not because we were any better than anyone else, but because you are kind and merciful, because you heal the sick, you forgive the sinful, and you rescue the lost. Help us to love as we have been loved. Help us to run from pride and prejudice and to trust that you will exalt the humble and that you will repay any cost incurred. Amen.